Welcome to The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Welcome to all you adventurers out there, those of you who are living in a new place. If you're new to the program, thanks for joining us. And don't be afraid to dabble around in the back episodes. In fact, if you go all the way back to episode one, you may get a better sense of who we are and what it is that we're doing. I'm not saying you need to, but if you want to. Once you have a sense of who we are, then you can jump around as you will. Although the show itself does have a very long narrative arc, particularly since we've been doing this show for almost four years. And remember, for those of you longtime listeners, those of you who really love the show, we're asking you to take action this month. Give thanks for the show. Show your support, your love for us by doing something. Maybe writing a review. Maybe you're telling a friend. Maybe you write it in an email to a bunch of people you know, a lot of new expats maybe, who are looking for somebody to keep them company. Spread the word. Let people know. And if you want to throw some money behind the show, it does cost quite a bit to put it out there, you can visit our website, thebittersweetlife.net, and donate to the show. It's easy, fun, and affordable. Uh, Because why? It's up to you how much you want to pay. If we all come together, the show continues, and we certainly want it to. We love keeping you company for all these years. And now on with the show. Welcome to New Orleans. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, and as you know, I'm down in New Orleans, and so I'm sitting with local New Orleans writer Anne Gislason. Her work has appeared in The Atlantic, The Oxford American, The Believer, and The Los Angeles Times, among other publications, and has been selected for inclusion in several anthologies, including The Best American Non-Required Reading. She also teaches at the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts, and she lives in New Orleans, obviously, so she wrote a great book called The Futilitarians, Our Year of Thinking, Drinking, Grieving, and Reading, which is why I'm here to talk to you. Hi. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, and thanks for inviting me down to your house. Turns out uh, we're neighbors. Mm-hmm. Attacks. Yeah, I wrongly said, uh, maybe you can bring us up to date. Tiffany was asking me, well, if you're right next to a railroad track, are you living on the good side of the tracks or the bad side of the tracks? And I said, I think I'm on the good side, but am I? Because you're on the other side of the tracks. Uh, yes, you're definitely on the good side of the tracks because whenever we get caught, it's because we're trying to get to your side. <laughs> and also the tracks are where, um, where Press Street is. That's where the Ninth Ward starts. And after the storm, you couldn't get after Katrina, you couldn't get anything delivered past the railroad tracks. Cabs wouldn't come, pizzas wouldn't come. It was just kind of like this dead zone below the, the tracks. So yeah, you're definitely on the right side. That's good. So I'm glad because I, you know, when you move to a new place, you're just shooting in the dark. You're like, I hope this is a decent place to live. I have no idea. So let's just talk about the book group that you formed that serves as the basis for this book, the Existential Crisis Reading Group. Yes. Tell me what it's about. The Existential Crisis Reading Group started in January of 2012. The idea for it came about in January of 2011. And there was a friend of mine, Chris, who approached me about doing some kind of one-on-one discussion about philosophical texts and big ideas. And Chris is incredibly, he's a brilliant, intense 
kind of jack of all trades kind of guy. And he would often just show up in the house when I was like, just like cooking dinner or whatever. I've got kids. He doesn't, um, you know, he's an amazing actor and he MCs and like burlesque shows. And he has that kind of life, this kind of very fluid, dynamic, fun life. And I'm a, you know, I'm a teacher, I'm a mom. And so I'd be like making dinner and feeling sorry for myself. And he would just show up and just like start talking and like have all these ideas. And so he said, would you want to sit down one-on-one with me? And I was like, oh God, no, like I... I have so much going on. I said, no, I couldn't. I just, I don't have the time for that. I said, but if you want to open it up as like a social thing where we have a few people, like or a bunch of people come and do it, then that would be something I can kind of integrate into my life somehow and kind of less pressure, more fun. And we're always looking for good social opportunities, yeah. you know, as parents. My husband loved the idea and we went to a it's like a Chinese buffet and we just made a list of all the people some we knew really well some we didn't some we were related to some knew each other most of them didn't uh, people who we thought might be into something like this who wouldn't like laugh at us or <laughs> um, or think it was like super pretentious or dumb and and so we got this list together and it was about 12 people and like almost everybody said oh absolutely because as we were making the list we realized man there's people have a lot of stuff going on in their lives and we think people might want to get together and talk about these things. Yeah. Now, was there certain things that you were hoping to talk about? I don't think so. I think there are always these like big looming questions, especially now. I think we probably that we always think that the age we live in is like this age where things are just changing so much. And there are all these big questions. And what does it mean to be human? And what about the self? Like, what is the impact of all these things happening in society and ourself? Like, I think maybe every age feels like that but this like especially especially feels like that and I don't know if it's just how technology has changed our lives and the way we interact with each other that makes it feel that way but maybe a hundred years ago at the turn of the other century people were feeling the same exact way that things are just changing so much and we need to slow down but in terms of big questions I think you know the uh, much talked about but hardly defined existential crisis um, and the existential angst about like, oh my God, like, what are we doing here? And why are we doing all these things? Yeah. That's kind of like, I think the big one yeah. that we end up kind of going back to. Yeah. I, my family has always been accused or maybe we've mostly accused ourselves of being people who observe life rather than living it. <laughs> and, and part of that is just like, we have this setback, like watch the people go about their lives, or at least that's how I feel sometimes. And sometimes I look at people like creating festivals and doing all this stuff. And I'm like, look at all this funny stuff we do to just entertain ourselves, you know, along the way. Yeah, entertain ourselves, forget about death, like our imminent deaths. Um, Yeah, it's like, why do we do all these things? And I think we all have that, that moment at some point, like you're getting ready to go to a party and you're like, oh my God, why am I going to this party? Like, why am I doing this? Like, why am I dressing up? Who says I have to do this? Why was I looking forward to it before? And now, I'm dreading it and I find no meaning in it, you know, like those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. I was going to get to this way later, but one of the things that you talk about in the book uh, or the quote that you have, and I'm going to say it wrong, but um, it's Epicurious, I think. Uh Do you know the quote off the top of your head or I can look it up? Yeah, I mean, it's roughly against most things in life we can find security. But when it comes to death, we all live in an unwalled city. I mean, that's the one thing that we are completely unprotected from i love that notion as a as a concept because it is we do spend so much of our lives building financial security and feeling like we have a nice home and safe and a family unit and all this thing but then you just can't hold off the fact that you're going to die and i feel like a lot of your book is talking about that what do you do with life that's purposeful if we're all going to die is that pretty accurate 
Yeah, I think it is. I think it's very accurate. I think more and more, given the things that have been happening, kind of at this astounding rate the last few weeks, all of these disasters, the natural disasters, the the man-made disasters, the like the, the massacre in in Las Vegas, like the images of that of people who are just doing this. Everyone looks like the kind of like the stereotypical, uh, like kind of normal American, right? Like the middle Americans, like these kind of young people who are out just to have a good time and they're, they've got their cowboy boots and their shorts. and But then you see them like in these horrifying situations and it's just like looking at some of those images from Las Vegas, you could just be doing something that's considered like just so like mainstream and, and joyful and then suddenly all this rains down on you. For those of you in Europe or whatnot that haven't heard, I'm sure you've heard, it's not gotta be international news that we had the largest mass shooting casualties at least in the United States history in Las Vegas not too long ago. I wonder with the character of this book and how deep you go in it, living in a town like New Orleans that had a catastrophe like Katrina happen in 2005. I know from my Seattle perspective, sitting way up there in the Pacific Northwest that I cried for like two weeks watching that on television. And what was that like to live here? Was What was the character of the city before and after from your perspective? You've lived here all your life, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think the character of the city before was very much a kind of a laissez-faire kind of environment where things had just been kind of like moving along for years and years. There wasn't a ton of progress on anything. The the schools were terrible. Politics were still corrupt. The infrastructure sucked. We all had a, a fantastic time. We had a really good time. It was very, very inexpensive to live here. Um, that's what brought my husband down when when he was in his early 20s. It was just super, super cheap. And so it had a different, a way different quality of life among, especially among like artists and writers and, and people I know, you know. I think a lot of the, the problems, the racial problems, the income inequality was stuff that was just, I mean, unfortunately, it was just kind of accepted as that's the, the way of the world in, in New Orleans. I remember like the week before it happened, we had had this big in the field across the street that kind of figures into the book and now this like nice garden. We had this like crazy party with like enormous like 500 pound blocks of ice and like hay bales. It was just like this like throw down, just this crazy. Oh, it was, and we called it grill hench because we had all these like barbecue grills in a row that we all lit at the same time. We just had like this kind of like hedonist, this wild party. And I remember like a few mo- weeks later after Katrina, we're sitting there, we're like, whoa, we're not going to be doing that stuff anymore. <laughs> you know, it's like now we got to kind of get serious, you know, like that. Now, like all of our energies that went into these like crazy projects, all of our energies went into, uh, like starting nonprofits and preserving the culture and creating culture. And people just became so much more purposeful and attentive to the city. And it was kind of an eye opener for me. And I think it continues to be after 12 years, like really seeing the city differently and just kind of the shame also like this uh, national shame that people saw all over, like, this poverty, this thing that we had just kind of accepted as a way of life. It was, there was a lot of a kind of like, you felt internationally shamed because of the images and what was exposed to everyone. And I think we all just kind of like wiped our eyes like, okay, all right, now we have to start really working at this. I mean, it was, it was traumatic and it was hard work. And, you know, things, things are still, you know, the schools still haven't figured it out. Our infrastructure still sucks 12 years later, (laughs) but at least, at least there's attention being paid to it and people are actually trying. Has anything changed as far as the poverty line or the racial divide in the city yet? You know what, I think the last, I think it's in some ways it's gotten worse. 
there about a hundred thousand african-american orleanians who just never came back after the storm and that's that's really heartbreaking but yeah some of the statistics and you may want to double check but that that like african-american males between the ages of 20 and 50 make like 50 percent of what white males make in that same bracket which is just criminal that shouldn't be happening Mm -hmm. we still have these just unbelievable um, incarceration rates among our African-American males and they still want to build like the bigger prison I don't know where that is with you know adding more beds there so I mean there's still like little kind of like pockets of reform that are happening and then like with the rampant gentrification and housing prices have gotten just so it's becoming really really unlivable for the people who have been here for generations and generations and generations and the people who've created the culture are being shoved out of neighborhoods like this one the one where we're living right now mm-hmm. more and more are being shoved out there's tons of airbnbs and short-term rentals that are gutting the neighborhood so sorry about that <laughs> <laughs> so well that's another issue we can talk about so i, I wish i know that I, there are probably way more positive statistics that i could be quoting right now like the schools are kind of getting better, but they're still kind of sucky and they're still really segregated yeah. racially and socioeconomically. So, I mean, we're still trying, but I was kind of hoping for more. So when it comes to the, the reading group that you form, so the book is broken up into different months and what you're reading during those different months. And you read a lot and there's a lot of huge ideas. I was telling somebody, I was reading your book and um, I forget who it was. Uh, probably my husband, Derek, asked me, like, aren't you done with that book yet? And I, said, <laughs> and I said, well, it's a really deep book. Like, it's not like one of those ones where you can just fly through, you know. It's it's like you have to sit with the chapters and actually think about it because you're going through a whole bunch of different writers and huge ideas about, you know, how to think about life. But is there any one that you looked at in that year that whatever their ideas were stick with you more than than some of the other ones that you read? I think in terms of ideas that I I turn to a lot in my life is would probably be the uh, the Arthur Kessler, the act of creation, that, the part that we read about the trivial and the tragic planes. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that one's because it's a really, it's an easy way to break down your life and what you're experiencing. And I think that there's something to be said from that, like being able to like kind of describe it and like codify it when, when things get kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you describe what the trivial and the tragic planes are to people who haven't read it? Yeah, sure. So Arthur Kessler had this idea that in his book, The Act of Creation, which is this like 700 page book that there's no way I could possibly read. But luckily, Tristan, who's in our group, did read it. And he had this like great section on um, this tragic plane and the trivial plane. And the, the tragic plane is when we connect to things in our life like despair, love, death, like these these really these big emotions and big ideas sometimes you know when we experience grief or something like that like that's that's where we are but you can't stay on that plane for a long time because it's totally destabilizing and you can't live your life like that and then there's the trivial plane which is where most of us are most of the time and that's like repetitive labor or errands you know cleaning the house and um uh answering emails and things like that so that's the trivial. that's just just like taking care of business like just like maintaining civilization and that's the trivial plane and he said, but those two planes, they need to come in contact with each other. And you can only really fully experience one through the other. So you need both planes. And he said that there's like kind of a seam or tightrope between the trivial plane and the tragic plane. And that's where a lot of creativity happens. Hmm. You need the tragic plane to be in touch with these big ideas and emotions, but you need the trivial plane to keep you sane and able to actually like form those things and to present them to the world. You know what I mean? So you need both of those. And 
Um, and so this idea of like living in between those two planes. And I think sometimes like I can sense it if I'm spending too much time on the trivial plane, thinking about my next hair appointment or like <laughs> I got to go to Target. I got to get, you know, I got to do all this stuff. Or I got to go to all these meetings for my kids' school. So like, all right, I've been spending too much time on the on the trivial plane. That's when you, you like break out a book of poetry or something like that. And just like take a minute to like reconnect with something deeper. And that's kind of what the ECRG, the existential crisis reading group is sort of for. And it's kind of a good combo of those because you know there'll be like some good wine and snacks and conversation like but you can just like jump right into like the tragic plane and everyone's cool with it yeah it's sort of like uh when you find those friends that are willing to go there with you they become so valuable compared to the people who are all the small talk or you know where you have to spend a good hour and a half getting to know each other again and then you can get to the deeper things but even if you guys were to flit around and like, what did you do last week? You can't stay there long just by the nature of the group. Yeah, because we all have the book in front of us or the printout in front of us. And we know we're like eager. And there's always someone who's like, all right, come on, let's jump in. Let's let's get down to it. Because there is like the, the kind of the catching up that happens first and then and a little socializing. And then someone's always like, all right. And then we just all kind of focus and dive in. Yeah. I don't remember where I pulled this from, from your book. <laughs> but somewhere in the book, made me want to ask you the question and maybe your the other people's opinions in your group can inform you but is it the doubt of truth or the search for truth that is the most important oh my gosh wait that's in the book <laughs> i mean i know doubts i know doubts in the book and the search is 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 in the book i think it must come from the very end yeah, I don't know if you asked that question like directly, but you get into um, what is the most important. Is it that you're searching for truth or that you're doubting that anything can be true, that you can arrive at the truth? Or maybe that's just what I thought. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Well, the book kind of ends embracing doubt with the, the collection of essays, the, the Fugitive Essays by Josiah Royce. And there's that quote about how in order to start the search, you have to begin with doubt. But I think, I mean, I think doubt and the the thought that you might not arrive at the quote unquote truth, I think that's really important to keep in keep in mind, mm -hmm. right? That just keeps keeps the search going. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know if I answered your question. No, it does. I was just sort of wondering like how, I don't know, I, I struggle with that my whole life because I interview so many people. I People always say, well, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And I said, well, I might have an opinion now, but I bet somebody's yeah. gonna prove me wrong later. Oh. Um, yeah. And so it's almost like, what is truth in some ways? Maybe it, it is the elusive thing. It is, doesn't exist, but maybe it does. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the things that I like about the group is that I change my mind all the time. Like you have these set ideas about a certain reading or an idea, and then you go into the group and people start talking. You're like, oh, yeah. yeah. And so I think doubt is this uh, this invitation, just like conversation is this, this invitation to the world to, just stay, to stay open to things. And I think like that's what we need more than ever now. Another thing that I really, really love about your book is how inventive you guys are, particularly in the chapter where you decide to remake the Stations of the Cross out in the world. I'll give a quick premise and maybe you can tell me what that was like. So I think it's in the March chapter, you guys, uh, April, April yeah. yeah. They decide that they're going to do the Stations of the Cross like you would find in the Catholic Church, but they're going to each draw one out of a hat, so to speak, and then they have to come up with a place that you're going to go that's out in the outside world that somehow represents whatever you drew. What was yours? Mine was uh, Simon has to, of uh, Cyrene has to help Jesus with his cross. And this is the moment where, 
you know, Jesus, he's been condemned to death and he's got to drag this cross like um, all across town. And there's huge crowds have come out to watch him is because it's this spectacle. But then because it's under the Roman Empire and he's taking way too long because he keeps falling, the Roman guards, they tap this guy, the spectator, who they think must have been really big. And there's some speculation he was also dark skinned and black, but to help him pick up the cross. It would have been considered this extreme humiliation to have to pick up a condemned man's cross and carry it. And so he did it because he didn't have a choice. Like when the Roman soldiers come and tell you to do something, you have to do it. There's absolutely no choice. You just have to do it or be killed. And so he did it. He picked it up and dragged it. And I just was wondering like what that moment was, like when you're forced into a position of, of helping someone, even though that you, something you might not really want to do, you know, you come under the spear and like you have to do this thing. Um, and I just wondered like what that would have been like for Simon to have to pick up like a tangible, you know, we always talk about, oh, picking up the cross, someone else's cross and someone else's burden. Like he actually like physically actually did that like bodily mm -hmm. and had to give it back to him at some point too. And so I was just wondering what that was like for him. And then there's more speculation that he actually wasn't resentful that he went on after that experience of actually doing this thing and like carrying his cross. He, there's speculation that he went on to be a sort of disciple and an early Christian. So how did you represent that with your reading group? Well, mine I thought was like the lamest of everybody's from that night. And I actually was too embarrassed to write about it. Then I left it out of the book completely because I'm like, this is really stupid what I did with it. I, I did a little preamble. I talked about that, like what I just talked about to you. And we were out in this park because the, um, the previous station um, was in this park. And so we were just like standing in this park and I'm talking about Simon of Cyrene picking up the cross and living under an empire and everything. Also, I was thinking, it made me think about ways that we help people just throughout the day. Like when you open up a door for someone or you say, hey, do you need a hand with that? Just like these little ways, these unspectacular ways that we help each other. They don't even register as helping somebody, but that's just what we instinctively do. And so we had, there's this, a few blocks, actually over where you're staying, back when this took place, there was this amazing bakery and it was Simon the Pieman was the, the guy, it was Hubig's Pies. And there's a big guy named Simon and it was on the package and it said, Simon, the pieman. And so I just wrote like little phrases in Sharpie because it were these pies were in these little bags or like little hand pies. And you know, like those little hostess pies. And so I just wrote those phrases like, hey, do you need a hand with that? Or hey, can I help out with that? I just wrote those phrases and I gave the pies, the Simon, the pieman pies to everyone. And it was really goofy. And I couldn't really think of anything else tangible to do. Um, but then like a few months later, the, the whole bakery burned down. And now the Shubik pies don't even exist anymore. So you captured it, the final moment, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the pies. But in thinking about that as a, as a concept, though, I think in the book at some point you ask, maybe our, our purpose in life is to help, help each other. Maybe that's as big as the higher calling is. Yeah, sometimes I, I just bring it back down to that. It seems like the most kind of like reasonable and practical way to, to think about like meaning and purpose. Does this group still exist? No? Yeah, we're meeting in a couple of weeks. <laughs> what are you going to meet about? What's the topic? Do you know? Yeah, we actually have a couple of new members of the group. And someone submitted this crazy essay. I've only read part of it. But that Alistair Crowley wrote when he was in New Orleans called The Green Fairy about drinking absinthe at the old absinthe house. And I looked through it and it's like this, it's kind of this wild essay. And I think it has a lot to do with like creativity and kind of like tragic plane stuff. So I'm going to try to track down a, a good bottle of absinthe for that. <laughs> good deal. One of the things you mentioned about in talking about your mother, 
<laughs> I mean, you kind of refer to yourself as a person, you know, who, um, you're always a little bit more uh, leaning toward not the tragic plane, but the tragic side, maybe in your in your thinking and that your mom is much more optimistic. She's much uh, happier. Let's just put it that way. But one of the things that you mentioned about her that we've talked a little bit about on this show is that she is a ritualistic person. She likes to celebrate the holidays in certain ways or like certain periods of the month in certain ways. Give me an example of something she would do. Well, first of all, she's very Catholic and she's very religious. And so she goes to mass a lot, a few times a week. But I mean, my goodness, she, she has this thing called the Jesse tree in her house. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's like a branch. And for every holiday, she'll like, for Easter, she'll like decorate it with Easter. You know, for Valentine's Day, she'll decorate it for Valentine's Day. Pumpkin carving parties, like every year, the day before Halloween, we always have like pumpkin. She's an amazing pumpkin carver. So it's kind of a combination of observing things at the same time and also like making things as well. Like, so it's a creative, mm-hmm. ritualistic endeavor. Is she using it to mark time or is it sort of how she expresses her creativity or maybe both? I think it's celebratory. I think that's her. I think her whole thing is it's all celebratory. And I think I told you, uh, or told you, <laughs> told you. <laughs> you did tell me. Via my book, <laughs> which I'm so happy you read. That makes me so happy. Like seeing all the little post-it notes sticking in there. I was like, oh, that's so great. Someone read it and like marked stuff with post-its. Um, is that when she was a kid, she grew up in this like super conservative, staid, like 1950s household where nothing was celebrated. Like nothing. It was just... I mean, when you would walk in that place, it was like a freaking tomb in there. You like hear the click, click, click of the clock. And it was just like, oh my God, a very um, kind of stultifying environment. And she went over to a friend's house on Father's Day and she saw this cake that was a necktie and it was in the shape of a necktie for Father's Day to commemorate Father's Day. And she thought that that was like the most amazing thing she had ever seen. Like, oh my God, they're celebrating Father's Day with this cake that's shaped like a necktie. And for her, that like changed everything. She wanted to start celebrating things in a way like that. That's like kind of like tangible and goofy and creative. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really, she just likes to celebrate life all the time. She makes me cards. I see her once a week for breakfast. And then sometimes I'll come home and there'll be a card in the mail that she made that she sent me Mm -hmm. just because she was thinking about me and wanted to make a card and like write some nice things on it. So I think she just wants to acknowledge and celebrate. Yeah. So my mom does, she doesn't make the cards often, but she does that same thing where she'll see you, you'll have her over for dinner and she'll write you a thank you note that arrives two years later, two days later. It's so wonderful. And I'm going to miss that so much because I know like when that generation goes, it's like, we're not going to, we're not going to have that. Well, you have to pick it up. You have to start writing the notes. I'm so bad about that. I'm really (laughs) bad about notes and handwriting and all of that. The book is a lot about, it's a lot about grief and I know that this is set in 2012, but you've gone through a lot of grief in your life. Do you think of yourself as being, I don't want to take away from the heaviness of this book. I want people to go read it because it has like this beautiful, heavy, shocking elements to it. But do you feel like a totally different person from before all the deaths in your family to now after having experienced all that grief, the and before and the and afterwards? Um, Yeah, I mean, I think... God, the and before, oh my God. Like, <laughs> Anne in her 20s, I'm totally like self-involved. But also, I mean, I think I've always had a kind of more kind of like critical, intense bent, maybe. But I think having gone through all the things that the family has gone through, 
I think, I mean, I do feel like, I totally feel like a different person. I mean, I'd probably feel like a different person even if I hadn't experienced all of those things. I like to think that I've learned something in the last 27 years or however long it's been, um, or that I've changed fundamentally through what I've learned and seen in life. But I think just like the sheer empathy, I mean, in one way, whenever someone loses someone in a similar manner or in a similarly kind of like shocking way, like I can immediately feel for them and connect to them. I think my, my empathy level has probably like shot through the roof after having dealt with all of this and dealt with it collectively because we're a big family, you know? So it's not just like you grieving alone in a room. It's like, it's a collective grief, you know, that you're always having to rehash. You want to tell people like the basic premise and we just won't give it, give anything away about what your family went through? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the basic premise of the book is that we started this group and then the next week my father uh, died. But then his death sort of unleashed me being able to kind of finally deal with and write about the deaths of uh, two of my sisters, the two youngest. There were eight kids growing up, and the two youngest were twins, and they committed suicide when they were about a year and a half apart. One was 23 and one was 25. And my father said that he would take it to the grave if I ever wrote about it. And um, he just wanted to, I think he just had this, wanted to just kind of control it um, as much as possible, the, the de- their deaths and their griefs and the grief and everything. And so when he died, I was like, all right, he took it to his grave. Here we go. And so that was part of that whole year was like finally writing about this stuff and really and really thinking about it because, I mean, honestly, the the way I really know what I think is through writing. Like I really, really need writing to uh, to process things. Yeah, and so a lot of the book is about their suicides as well. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that with him saying, Anne, there's no way that you can write about this if I'm alive, I'm going to be very unhappy with you if you, write, if you write something about this. Did that make it so that you couldn't really process what had happened with them? Or, I mean, were you writing about it just for yourself? Or, you know, as a writer, how did that affect you, that kind of edict that he threw down? Well, I mean, I wrote about it some when it first happened. And then, like, when the edict came down, it's kind of like one of those things with, I'm, I'm not a, a diary keeper this sounds terrible I don't kind of just write just to write most of the time I usually write with some because there's something like um, an end purpose whether it's a deadline or something that I just feel like this real necessity to kind of work out but I feel like I always want to know that it's going to end up someplace I don't write for the for the drawer you know what I mean and for this I was just like so and I think also maybe I just wasn't ready to write about it either and I'm actually glad that like 12 years passed before before I wrote about it so in a way I mean, yeah, it was really shitty of him to <laughs> to shut me down like that. But also, I think, like, it's probably way better that I waited so long and gave myself this, this distance, too. Does it feel weird at all uh, to have it out there in book form now, even though he's has passed away? Yeah, it kind of does. Um, some people have asked about that in, like, Q&A. It's like, you know, your dad didn't, didn't want you to write about this, and yet you did. Like, how did you go about justifying that and the answer for me is always really easy which is one he's dead I loved him but he's he's gone and second my mother who is very much alive was really positive and supportive about it and frankly and she was sick of all the years of silence and not talking about things and how isolating that was for her so my feeling was as long as my mom was okay I didn't really care as much about what like my brothers and sisters I mean they all saw it and and they're for the most part very supportive about it, but it was really my mom's. Like as long as she gives me the thumbs up, then I'm fine with it. Yeah, and isn't part of an artist trying to also say, well, 
get past the fear of what your parents will think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I once had an extremely famous writer tell me that he could not become a good writer until his father died. Like he had to wait until his, not like consciously wait, but as soon as his father died, that was just like... Doors are thrown open. Yeah, doors <laughs> thrown open, corks coming out for the bottles. Like that's, there's like, I guess this thing kind of hanging over you. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, the, one, the way I want to end is by asking you, so many of the people who listen to this are on the move all the time. Our show has a lot of travelers who are constantly moving, are constantly trying to find themselves or reinvent themselves. Some are moving to other countries and staying there for long periods of time. And as a result of our new social media culture, a lot of what people are doing in that time is documenting it, mm -hmm. you know, whether it be through tweeting or Instagram or whatever. Um, they have this sort of external audience in their mind as they move through the world. And I wonder if for you as a writer, do you find that you're often when things are happening in your life, you're involved in it, but you're also sort of writing about it in your head, you know, like that you have that kind of remove like I don't know how do you think about your own life from the perspective of being an artist also well I think it's it's tough I don't I don't really engage much in like in social I don't put a lot of my life out in social media like I don't post pictures of my kids I don't post pictures of vacations like I don't I don't do a lot of that via social media I know a lot of people who are always in performance mode who are on social media a lot and like constantly documenting and I would think that that would be exhausting but I do longer essays about big things that happen and like big ideas that I need to, to work through. So in that sense, yeah, like material, like most of my material and especially the last, um, I don't know, maybe the like last five or 10 years, so much of it has been domestic, like things that are happening in the city, things that are happening in my, in my family. And so I always uh, kind of, sometimes I second guess myself when I'm like, oh my God, this would make a great essay. And I have to kind of check myself and be like, why would this make a great essay? And what are the ramifications of putting this out there? Especially like if I write about my kids or something like we had terrible family tragedy last year. My, my nephew died of a, um, of a heroin overdose. And I ended up writing a long, long essay about that, about how I had to just like flee and just like get out of town with the kids one day because everything was just feeling so claustrophobic because he was like the same age as my sisters when they died. I'm like, I can't even handle this place anymore, you know, and just kind of escaped. And that one was like, oh, that was really, I'm like, why? I had to, I had to really interrogate my motives for wanting to write about that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I'm so neurotic and it just takes a lot of self-interrogation for me to put anything personal out there. That's why I can't spontaneously post stuff about my life. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 But yet you choose to be a memoirist. So yeah, you are willing to put out a big piece of you into the world yeah a big piece that takes like three years to get out <laughs> there that doesn't take 30 seconds you know what i mean right. yeah but i do feel like that's definitely part of like the uh the performative culture you know like a friend of mine who's in the book who wasn't very crazy about how he was portrayed and he's like he's like that was my fault for hanging out with a writer he's like i knew i was friends with a writer <laughs> and that's you know you don't want to be written about don't hang out with one so true i know and uh sorry everybody who's been on our show because you know <laughs> podcasters and writers uh-oh uh well thank you so much for taking the time to do this thank you so much for reading the book and coming by the house yeah the book is called the futilitarians i'm gonna forget how to pronounce your last name again now how, what? it's gislison and gislison 
It's spelled G-I-S-L-E-S-O-N if you want to look it up. But I'll put a link at our website so that you can find it too. And um, yeah, until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Thanks for being with us. Bye. My thanks to the Dapper Dandies for supplying some of the music for the new New Orleans opening of the show. And big thanks to our new intern, Estrella Gomez, for all of her hard work. Be sure to visit her blog at lacasablaga.com. And remember, take action if you love the show. Tell a friend, write a review, write a blog post, or give us a donation. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.